In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Moses wasn't doing well. Raised in Pharaoh's household, he was now on the run, an alien in a foreign land keeping his father-in-law's flock. He led the flock to Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. God called to him from the bush, and God gave him a job to do. Doing that job, later, Moses wasn't doing well. The people he was leading toward a promised land turned out to be inveterate complainers, incapable of remembering the miracles God did for them from one day to the next, and yet tremendously needy, not just for the food and drink God provided, but for counsel, statutes, and instructions. God provided these two on the same mountain where the bush had once burned, and his glory passed Moses by, hidden in the cleft of a rock, though Moses could only see his back, not his face. Then God sent Moses down the mountain again with a job to do. Elijah wasn't doing well. That's an understatement. He was praying for death. Like the Israelites who just witnessed God's triumph over Pharaoh's chariots at the Red Sea, Elijah had just witnessed God's victory over the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. But Queen Jezebel was now even more implacably bent on killing him. And Elijah, too, was on the run in the wilderness. He was tired of running. He lay down under a solitary broom tree and fell asleep. An angel woke him. Get up and eat. Elijah ate and drank and went back to sleep again. Again, the angel woke him. Get up and eat some more. He did. And now he felt a bit better, strong enough to keep running, or journeying anyway, 40 days and 40 nights to the same mountain where God had first spoken to Moses. And there God passed by Elijah too, not in a great wind, nor an earthquake, nor a fire, but in the sound of sheer silence. And the voice Elijah heard gave him a job to do. Simon wasn't doing all that well either. Things had been going well. Following Jesus, he'd witnessed the lame walking, the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the blind seeing, great crowds fed on a tight budget, storms calmed. He was learning, he felt, as Jesus unpacked parables for his chosen band. He just correctly deduced that Jesus was the Messiah, earning the undoubtedly cool nickname, Peter. 
But now Jesus was saying he'd go to Jerusalem to undergo great suffering and be killed. And when Peter took him aside to point out just how bad this plan sounded, Jesus rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. A much less cool name to be called. <laughs> and Jesus told him and all the rest of the disciples that actually, if any of them really wanted to be his followers, they'd have to take up their crosses and lose their lives too. About a week went by after Jesus started saying this confusing stuff, and he took Peter and James and John up a different mountain, traditionally Mount Tabor in Galilee, where we're told he was transfigured before them. What does this mean? Our reading from Mark's gospel gives us only a few details. Jesus's himation, his cloak, becomes bright white, whiter than any launderer on earth could whiten it, is what it literally says. Moses and Elijah appear and talk with Jesus. A cloud overshadows them, and from it, a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And after the voice, suddenly they see no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. His three companions clearly didn't know what to make of these events. Mark says they were terrified and didn't know what to say. But they also have this sense that it's good for them to be there. Peter, who never lets not knowing what to say stop him from saying something, <laughs> proposes camping out. Jesus swears them to secrecy until the Son of Man's rising from the dead. And that's about it from our reading today. Matthew and Luke's parallel accounts add just a few further elements. That they went up the mountain to pray. That while Jesus prayed, Peter, James, and John appear to have fallen asleep. And that there was a lot of glory. Not just Jesus' clothes, but his face shone like the sun, and Moses and Elijah were glorious too. That's about the extent of what we're told, though. So again, what does it mean? The fact that Moses' and Elijah's experiences took place atop the same mountain surely invites us to consider their respective experiences in parallel as does the presence of the lawgiver and prophet alongside Jesus in the transfiguration. So when we do that, what do we notice? Well, for one thing, theophanies, appearances of God to man, seem to happen when the humans appeared to are in a bad way, in trouble, confused, overwhelmed, even in despair. This was true of Moses, Elijah, and the apostles, especially poor Simon. For another thing, they seem to happen when God knows we need them to equip us for something he needs us to do. I've noted the specific jobs God sent Moses and Elijah off Mount Horeb to accomplish. Jesus didn't assign the apostles a task immediately atop Mount Tabor, he doesn't do so ultimately, you might say, until the Great Commission, 
that Joel preached on so memorably last Sunday. But I'd say the more immediate task for which he was equipping the disciples was simply to follow him on the road to Jerusalem, ending at another mountain, Mount Calvary. Mountaintop experiences don't seem to equip us for these tasks by answering all of our questions, making everything suddenly clear. It's pretty unclear what happened to Moses, seeing God's back, or to Elijah, a sound of sheer silence. The disciples definitely seem confused about what was happening to them, nor do the experiences seem to endow anyone with spiritual superpowers. The apostles are idiotically debating who's the greatest just a few verses after the transfiguration. Moses strikes the rock out of frustration and doubt, and Peter, the rock, denies Christ three times. Only in retrospect does Peter, in our epistle today, recognize the significance of what happened to him on the mountain that day. He compares it to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The psalm we sang today says, one thing I asked of the Lord, this I seek, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will set me high upon a rock. When God set Moses, Elijah, and the apostles high upon a rock in their days of trouble, I would say, it was to offer them a foretaste of glory, a glimpse at his beauty, which we'll behold fully someday in the Lord's house forever. The apostles may not have had much clue what was going on in the transfiguration, but they knew it was good for them to be there. They knew it was something they wanted to last. Peter's epistle says he thinks it right to refresh the memories of those he's addressing so that at any time after his departure, they would be able to recall these things indicating that even those not present for the events on Mount Tabor that day are able through faith to participate in them, to hear through faith God the Father saying by the Spirit to his Son, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. And for what is God equipping us by reminding us of these words? I think our church calendar makes it plain. We heard these same words back at the beginning of Epiphany when we celebrated Christ's baptism in the Jordan, preparing Jesus himself for 40 days struggle in the wilderness with Satan. And now at the end of Epiphany, we ourselves prepare for 40 days following Jesus like the disciples to Mount Calvary. Moses, 
wasn't doing well. Nor Elijah, nor Simon. In our struggles in the wilderness with the sins of our hearts, are we doing well? For me, any kind of honest answer shows me the job God is sending me away to do. We live as Christians by the church calendar, but it'd be pretty hard as American Christians to ignore the other calendar on which it's Super Bowl Sunday. And if I might be allowed an utterly mundane analogy at the end of this sermon, the transfiguration is like a really fantastic halftime pep talk. Things are looking grim, but there are still two long quarters to play, and the coach is inspiring us with a vision of glory. Okay, if that analogy is too mundane for your taste, I got it from a friend, <laughs> honestly. But one more mundane observation that's maybe so obvious that it's also often easy to forget. This one from my dad, for whom it was an old favorite. God is the one who reveals himself to us on mountaintops, and there's nothing we can do to force these sorts of experiences or bring them about. We certainly needn't run off anywhere exotic pursuing them, but I do think we can impede hearing God's voice just by failing to sleep or eat or allow any time of stillness in our busy lives. The apostles seem, in addition to being confused, also to have been exhausted. They seem to have gone to sleep before they can witness the transfiguration. Moses is only able to hear God's voice on Horeb after, in the previous chapter, his father-in-law Jethro gives him the excellent advice to delegate some of the many tasks that had been keeping him relentlessly, breathlessly busy. Before Elijah could hear God's still, small voice, he slept and ate and slept again and ate again, and only then could journey to the mountain of God. Small as it is, that's something as we set out on our Lenten journey, I think we'd do well to remember. Amen.